Christ, our hope in life and death. Let's hear from God's Word. We're going to read from Titus uh, chapter 1. We're going to continue with our studies in Titus. So we're going to read the first nine verses. This is the Word of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. If you have your Bibles with you, then I'd really encourage you to open it up again at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and today we're really focusing on verses 5 through to 9. Titus chapter 1. Let me pray and ask God to help us. Father, we need your help, because without your help, we will not be able to hear what it is that you're saying to us. Thank you for your word. And Lord, now we pray that your word and your spirit might work together to help us, to help us to hear, to help us to apply, and to help us do what it is you're calling us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Leadership is important, isn't it? Leadership is important, and the life that a leader lives is important. Isn't that one of the big things that we recognize as we get to the end of a week where we have seen the the change of Prime Minister from Boris Johnson to Liz Truss, and the death of Queen Elizabeth II, and the beginning of the reign of of a new king, Charles III. Leadership is important. And the life that a leader lives is important. Today we're looking not at the leadership of earthly kingdoms, which rise and fall, but rather we're going to be looking at the under-shepherding rule that is given to elders, elders who are overseers of Christ's church, and they rule under Christ, who is its sole head and forever king. Paul is writing to Titus, 
And as we look at verse 5, we can see that he's left Titus in Crete with a job to do. He's got some work that he has to get on with. Verse 5 says this, I'm reading from the ESV. It says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might, be, you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It seems from the text that at some point Paul has visited the island. He's been preaching the gospel and planting churches. And now it's likely that this, is, um, uh, this was after Paul's imprisonment that he, he went out and visited um, Crete. But although Paul didn't stay, he, he left someone. He left someone to continue on the work. Crete was a, a sizable island, 3,000 square miles, lots of towns, lots of cities, and Titus has been tasked with putting the church into order. And the way he needed to do this was to appoint elders, elders in every town. Presumably some new churches had been established, but they hadn't yet got their own elders. And because they didn't have their own elders appointed, the churches were at great risk. In fact, in verse 10, we see what the problem was. There were many who were insubordinate, many who were empty talkers and deceivers, and they must be silenced. And what's the reason? Well, they were leading people astray, weren't they? They were upsetting whole families with their false teaching. See, the thing is, there's, there's always leaders, isn't there? You bring any group of people together and you leave them, and, and there's the, the leaders who naturally take control. You start to see who the leaders are, the people who start to make suggestions, and people start to follow them. There's always leaders, isn't there? Whether it's in a primary school playground, whether it's in a workplace, whether it's in a church. Now, the thing is, not all leaders are good leaders. Not all leaders are wise leaders, and not all leaders will lead you to the places that you should go. They direct and people follow, but it's not always helpful. So you can naturally be a leader. You can naturally have lots of people who follow after you, and yet you could lead them in completely the wrong direction. And that's what's happening in Crete. There are leaders, yes, people who have maybe appointed themselves as leaders or see themselves as leaders. They're certainly having big uh, influence and direction, and yet in all sorts of wrong ways. Some people are being led and taught but they're listening to and being directed by the wrong people. And it was wreaking havoc in this church. And that's why Paul is so keen to address the issue of church leadership in this letter. Last week, Alistair took us through the introduction, the greeting section of the letter. And after that, we are straight into the primary concern in Paul's mind. And his primary concern is this, leadership within the church. It's really, really important. Because without good leadership, the church is disordered. And it is at great risk. And I want you to see the the link. He's to put what remains into order. And how is he to do that? Appointing elders. The Greek word for elders here is actually presbyteros. That's where we get that word presbyterian. And actually, it's it's maybe helpful just to to pause and think about that. We're in a Presbyterian church this morning. Some of you are well aware of that. Some of you maybe have given that little thought whatsoever, that this is a Presbyterian church. This is the ritual Presbyterian Church. We're part of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And one of the things that marks a Presbyterian Church as different from some other churches is our leadership structure. We are an elder-led church. The highest office in the Presbyterian Church is that of an elder. So if you're a minister, you're a teaching elder, 
but you're an elder. And even if you're voted to become the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, your office is still that of an elder. Now, you're tasked with chairing meetings of um, church court meetings where 450 churches send elder representatives. That's a pretty big job, but, but your office is that of an elder. And so the Presbyterian Church is elder-led under Jesus Christ, who is the supreme head and king of the church. And even here, we can see a pattern that is established in terms of appointing elders that I think we as a denomination try to follow. Notice that Titus is tasked with appointing elders in each of the churches. That's his role. And notice that it's elders plural. So a church should not just have one person dictating how everything goes, but there should be a a plurality of elders, a number of elders. And Titus, he's to go around each town and his job is to appoint them. It's not that Titus was a member of each of these churches, but he had some sort of leadership role that has been assigned uh, with the task of appointing the elders. We've just had elders recently appointed in, in Rich Hill here. Maybe you were here the night that the lights went off. That was a memorable evening, wasn't it? Um, A memorable evening, not just because the lights went out, because we were able to have some new elders join the team of elders here. And perhaps you'd never been to anything like that before, and you found it all a bit strange, and there was all these new faces up at the front, and you were thinking, what on earth is going on here? Who are these people? Why are they here? Why are they the people who are actually ordaining the elders into that position? Well, just to kind of explain it, it was a a delegation from uh, the local presbytery that we're part of. In other words, there were some elders from other local Presbyterian churches, and they come along and they laid hands on the men and ordained them as elders here in Rich Hill Presbyterian Church. And why is it that we do it like that in the Presbyterian Church? Well, we think it's a pattern that we see established in Scripture, not just here, but, but elsewhere. Now, as a, as a congregation, you got a say as to who those men would actually be. Presbyterian didn't just turn up some night and say, okay, well, we're going to pick you, you, and you, and, and you had no say. No, 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 that's not how it works. Those who were full members of the church, they got to nominate names. Uh, those names were then brought before the session, the elders who were here, and they looked at those names and they thought, who, who out of these do we think we can see clearly align with how an elder is supposed to live? This is a pattern that we see established here in Titus, isn't it? That's what we see. Elders are to be above reproach. And if Titus was to arrive in a church, he had to ask the congregation, who is that? Because he wouldn't have known. He wouldn't have known what their life was like outside of a Sunday morning or when he pops in to visit. He wouldn't have known what they were like, what their reputation was like in the local community. He would have had to ask the local congregation, And so I think that's what we see must have happened here. Elders are to be above reproach. We notice that, don't we? That's what he says. And in fact, the little word if here, which is included in the ESV, it's not included in the NIV at the start of verse 6. But in the ESV it says, if anyone is above reproach, and the if is in the Greek, and I think the if is helpful because I think it's saying this, if anyone fits the bill, well then they can be appointed as elders, but if no one fits the bill, do not appoint people. Do not appoint people. Do not think, okay, we must have oh, X number of elders. I'm 
you know, we'll just take whoever, whoever is, uh, comes near the top or, or comes close to meeting uh, the description. No, if they do not meet this description, then they are not supposed to be elders. If people don't fit the bill, then they shouldn't be appointed. Paul is saying to Titus, it's better to have less elders than to appoint people into the role of elder who are not ready for it. But this idea of being above reproach it's an assessment of someone's life, isn't it? Especially by those who are looking on. If their life is held up against what they believe, how do they actually fare? Do they live a life that is consistent with the gospel message that they proclaim? If Titus was to have gone into the local town and he was to have said, well, Mr. Joe Bloggs, he's, he's just been appointed as, as one of the elders in the church, would people have thought, well, sure, we can see that. Yeah, that matches up with his life. Or would they have laughed to themselves and thought, what? That womanizer? <laughs> that drunkard? That man whose, whose children run riot without any discipline right through our town or village? <laughs> are, are you for real? Because isn't that what happens? He says they must be above reproach, and then he goes on to flesh out what that looks like in verse 6. So as you look for elders, what is he not? Well, here's what Titus says. He is not unfaithful. He has to be the husband of one wife. In other words, he's to be a, a one-woman man. He's not to be a womanizer. He's not to have the reputation of cheating on his wife. His sexual ethics should be in line with that of the teaching of Scripture. And maybe you're thinking, does this mean that to be an elder, you must be married? Well, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. For a start, Paul himself was single. And all of the evidence points to the fact that Titus, too, was single. But I think the general situation where Paul was writing into would have been one where most men would have been married. But surely for the man who is not married, well, then the same kind of applies, doesn't it? His sexual ethic must match up to how a single Christian is called to live. Sex is a gift restricted for marriage. So what does Paul mention next? Well, in the ESV, he says this, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. NIV puts it like this, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And this is a section that's, that's difficult for us to understand because, well, there's lots of questions, isn't there? Another question might be, well, does an elder have to have children? Well, no, I, I don't think that's what it's really getting at. Again, like marriage before, I don't think Paul is saying that you must have children and notice if we were going to tie it really closely to what it says, it's plural. So even if they had one child, that wouldn't be enough to make you eligible to be an elder. But rather, what I think he's addressing here is what is a normative pattern. In a normal situation where a man is married and he is blessed with children, watch on and see how he leads his family. And if he can lead his family, then that is one of the marks that he may be able to lead the family of God. Because if you watch on and this man cannot lead his family, well then why on earth do you think you should entrust the family of God to him? Those who can be trusted with a little are then trusted with more. We, we know that, don't we? It's not really surprising to us if he went to uh, a school and a graduate teacher had just been given the, the post of principal, you'd be thinking that this is a bit bizarre. I mean, would you not have trusted them with with leading a class and, and then maybe becoming a senior teacher and then maybe becoming principal, you wouldn't just stick him straight in his principal, would you? 
So we understand it. We, we know that that's normal. And so maybe perhaps an application from this passage for those who are without children of their own would be to give them opportunities, opportunities to take a smaller group and to prove themselves in terms of leadership. So for men who are married and have children, then the natural place to see them do that is their family. It's a small group and they're leading it. But for those who are single or for those who uh, don't have children, as you watch on, look at them as they lead other groups. Maybe a growth group. Do you see that growth group led well and does it flourish? As they teach in a Sunday school class, can you see the care and attention and leadership that they provide for that Sunday school class? And if so, if they're able to lead in a narrower setting, well, then you think, okay, maybe, maybe they'll be able to lead the big family of God. But if the man does have children, how are we to judge them? Again, this is, this is difficult for us to understand. And maybe you've got a question, what is it that would rule someone out from being an elder? Maybe you were in the church car park. And you spotted their child stick out their tongue at another child. And you think, well, you were so close. And that was it. Well, firstly, the word translated as as children here is is usually, speaking of younger children, those who are still dependent on their parents. So it's it's different than those who have have left the home and live live on their own. But how are we to understand that next section? It's, It's really difficult to translate. Both the ESV and the NIV have chosen to say, Uh, believe, but it could also be translated as faithful or trustworthy. So in a sense, it's it's quite hard to be sure if it's saying that children must be believers following in the faith of their father, or whether it's saying that they have to behave appropriately as children, obeying their father with respect. I think if I was to pick, I'd, I'd probably go with the second, basing it more on behavior rather than being sure that someone's child is marked as one of God's elect. So I think the question has to be here, are the children submissive to their father? Do they respect their father? And part of the reason I think that's what it's hinting at is because of what he goes on to say next, because it's almost like he's, he's continuing on to expand on that. He says, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, or as the NIV puts it, not to be wild and disobedient. In other words, are their children renowned for weighty, sinful rebellion, refusing to come under the headship of their father? If that's the case, well, then they should not be elders. So we're not talking here about normal childish behavior. We're not talking about immaturity that we expect from a, a child or a teen. No, this is something, something much more weighty than that. And so if you look at a man and you think he is leading his home well, he is leading his family well, well then it's a natural litmus test. And if he leads them well, well then maybe he could do the same in the church. Verse seven, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Notice that this time Paul changes the, the word from elder but to overseer. And here I really think he's just using the, the words interchangeably. Elder speaks of the office but this talks rather of the role. They are to oversee things. And notice how they are described. They're described as God's steward. So the ESV translates it. The older NIV says entrusted with God's work. The newer NIV says uh, that they are to manage God's household. 
Do you see what they're, they're getting at as they all kind of uh, try to work out the translation? But the elders here is the overseer. They're given responsibility, responsibility of stewarding God's house. This is a weighty responsibility. Some of you are elders here. That is a weighty responsibility. Some of you are future elders. That is a weighty responsibility, a weighty responsibility. And all of us need the elders to do their job well, to keep the house in order. So can I urge you to pray for your elders? It is a weighty, weighty responsibility. Sometimes we can be good at at criticizing from the sidelines. Sometimes we can have a running commentary and say, well, this is what I would do if I was an elder, (laughs) okay? But if you become an elder, you realize just what a weighty, weighty responsibility that you have. And for those who are elders, you, you know what it's like. You know that there's an awful lot more goes on Decisions that have to be made, weighty, responsible decisions, things that you need to think through, things that you need to take care of that most people here have no idea of. So can I encourage you to care for your elders as you pray for them and encourage them? And then notice what comes up again. They must be above reproach. The elder must be a man of integrity. There is nothing about their life that is to be obviously inconsistent with their faith. That's the big summary of this. An elder should be above reproach. Sometimes here in the world of politics, whenever someone refuses to ask a question, maybe about a reported sexual scandal or something like that, and they say, well, my private life doesn't affect my public life. My private life doesn't affect my public life. Don't ask me those questions. That's my private life. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says your track record matters. Why would we think that you would act any different in public than you would in private? If you don't have integrity in your private life, well then, why would we expect you to have integrity in your public life? So what does that look like? What sorts of things are red flags whenever we're looking for godly men to be an elder? Well, here is what he is not. Here is what he is not. Let me jump back. He must not be arrogant, okay? In other words, he can't be someone who who thinks more about himself than others, someone who is overbearing. Now, they they need to be bold, absolutely. They need to be bold in declaring the truth of God. And when it comes to service, absolutely, they need to be bold. But they must not hold a sense of superiority as if they are above others. They must not be quick tempered. There is no place for a hot headed bully on the eldership. He must not be a drunkard. So if he's given to excessive drinking, well then, that is not the mark of an elder. He must not be violent. So if they've got a reputation for striking out, whether physically or or even verbally, well then that rules them out of contention for being appointed as an elder. And finally, they must not be greedy for gain. So it's not that they don't rely on God to provide for them, absolutely, They enjoy God's good gifts, absolutely, but they are not motivated by greed. But notice how it's not enough just to have the the bad fruits, not have the bad fruits even. Rather, they must have good fruits. So what what does that look like? Well, this is what it looks like. He is to be hospitable, someone who's willing to open up their home and their life to others, uh, not just for entertainment, but for service. And there's a difference between opening up your home for entertainment and for service. They're to open it up for caring for the needy, for feeding of the hungry, 
for building friendships with, their lo- with the lonely. They're to be a lover of good. They're to be someone who is championing what is good, both inside the church and outside the church. They are someone who is to be self-controlled. That's the opposite of the drunkard, isn't it? The opposite of the person who lashes out and cannot control their fists or their tongue. And Paul says here that they need to be able to control themselves before they can control the church. Again, it makes sense, doesn't it? They are to be upright. In other words, they are to walk according to God's law. They are to be holy. They are to be devout followers of Jesus. Their life should be marked out by godliness. And so maybe a question that you might ask if you're considering appointing someone or nominating someone as an elder would be this. What is their attitude to holiness? What's their attitude to holiness? Are, Are they sloppy and kind of flippant when it comes to their language or their actions? Do they have an eager desire for sanctification or are they, are they quite, do you know, blasé about the whole thing? And they must be disciplined. They should be someone who watches over their actions and their words carefully. Whenever you look at their life, have they ordered it in such a way that you know they are serious about following Jesus? So we've looked at what an elder ought not to be in both character and action and what he ought to be. And then finally, Paul includes the doctrinal requirements. In fact, this is the only one that's linked to gift, isn't it? All the rest are just about how they they go about living their ordinary everyday lives. But then in verse nine, this is what he says. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he is able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So in other words, the elder must hold to the, the Christian faith. He must know the orthodox teaching of the church. He, he must be able to give instruction and rebuke. He needs to be able to discern and to be able to teach people. At some points, he needs to be able to draw alongside someone and, and encourage them in a particular way. And that looks different, doesn't it? Depending on the situation. Looks different if you're encouraging someone who's struggling with a, different, a difficult boss or if you're encouraging someone who's they just lost a family member and they're grieving. But they also need to be able to step in and have hard conversations when correction is needed. The man who is not willing to step in and to do that is not suitable to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, this is a hefty calling, isn't it? This is a weighty thing to be a leader under Jesus in the church. And as you look through the list of, of what the life of an elder is to look like, well, isn't it actually the calling of every Christian to live a life of integrity? Isn't that what we're all called to do as Christians? So don't just think to yourself, well, Jeff, this has nothing to do with me. I'm never going to be an elder, <laughs> or I'm, I'm very happy never to be an elder, and so I'm just going to continue to live on as, as how I see fit, you know? No, 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 this is a call for all of us. Our lives are to match our declaration of faith. So live like this. As many mourn the passing of late Queen Elizabeth, isn't this what people have been saying? They've been saying her life was one of integrity. She was a lover of what was good. She was self-controlled. She was upright She lived her life in a a holy manner. She was disciplined. 
Isn't that a wonderful testimony? It's a calling for all of us though, isn't it? But it's a requirement for those who are to be elders, overseers for the leaders of God's church. And here's the wonderful thing. Brian Chappell in his commentary highlighted this and I just thought it was brilliant. I've kind of been thinking about it ever since this week. Because as we look around the church and we see godly men, godly elders, it reminds us of the gospel, doesn't it? It reminds us of the gospel. It points to the gospel. Because it tells us this, change is possible. Change is possible. Sanctification is a reality for the Christian. Jesus is at work changing his saints one degree after another to be transformed more and more and more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderfully good news? My life, your life can change. Christian, Jesus is changing you. And for those who are here today and you don't yet follow Jesus. Isn't this life that's, that's held up here in, in Titus something that's attractive? As you look at that list, don't you think, boy, that is an attractive life. I would love that to be me. And maybe you've got to know some people in church. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. <laughs> you've, you've got to know some Christians and actually you're seeing that marked out in their life. Maybe, you, maybe they came to faith recently and you've even seen a, a change already in their life and that's been attractive that's the gospel. And that can be true for your life too. If you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, he can change you. And that is wonderfully good news. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the, the fact that we can have our sins forgiven through Christ. But thank you that you don't leave us there. You don't leave us just as we are, but you continue to work in us, to sanctify us, to live more and more like Christ. And Father, that changed life points to the gospel at work. And so I want to thank you for all of those in this congregation where that is so evident. We thank you for our elders, godly examples to us. Thank you for their witness. Help them to continue to live lives of integrity and to lead well, keeping order in your house as stewards. Might they be humble servants, continually seeking to please you. And for those who don't know you this morning, might you use the sparkle of the gospel at work in others' lives as a way of witnessing and winning them, witnessing to them and winning them for yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.